Welcome to the Wirecard Saga, a podcast with Tom Fox and Mikhail Ryder-Gordon, Managing Director of Institutional Ethics and Integrity at Affiliated Monitors. Over this podcast series, we're going to take a deep dive into the Wirecard Saga to see where it may take us literally across the globe. Mikhail Ryder-Gordon and myself continue our exploration of all things Wirecard with our 19th episode where we look at some of the gaps in compliance and at those companies who either facilitated Wirecard or doing business with Wirecard. It's a fascinating exploration. I know you will enjoy it. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Box. Welcome back to another episode of the Wirecard Saga, where I'm joined by my colleague, Mikhail Ryder-Gordon, Managing Director at Affiliated Monitors. Mikhail, what do we have today? Thanks, Tom. Well, listeners, the past two weeks, recriminations have topped the Wirecard headlines, or the Wirecard charts. In fact, let's just open with a translation of one of the Bundestag's own press releases, which really, in a pithy statement, kind of sums it up. Quote, The investigative work of the Wirecard Investigation Committee is constantly unearthing new gaps in the monitoring of companies. See how succinctly that gets to the heart of the financial portion of this scandal? I've set aside momentarily the politics, the lobbying, the conflicts of interest, and the espionage elements. And don't worry, I'll get to those in just a minute. For the moment, let's turn back to compliance, or lack thereof. When a jurisdiction's own regulators struggle with ethics, integrity, and compliance, are these mitigating factors when our regulated companies fail to comply? Let's face it, Wirecard's financial frauds are outsized, the crimes myriad, and the scale of said crimes has left many an investor and lender reeling. But when we examine just the, quote, accounting irregularities and the failure to test Wirecard as a publicly traded company, there is plenty of culpability to share with Germany's own band of ethically challenged regulatory bodies, Boffin, Apis, and now FREP. What? More slime oozing out from the under the German regulatory rock? Sadly, yes. <clears throat> Let's start with what many of the longtime listeners of this show already know. That is, during the inquiries of the Bundestag's investigative committee, the IC, much of what has emerged from the hearings with representatives from the various regulatory bodies, ostensibly they responsible for oversight of the likes of the wire cards of the German corporate landscape, is a clear sense of inadequate structures, controls, and, well, in some instances, just outright absent integrity. Last week, we said goodbye to Felix Hofeld and his second-in-command at Boffin, and we heard from the frankly stunning admissions from the Bavarian, that's the state-level, regulators that they really didn't have the knowledge or wherewithal to monitor any large company for compliance with the anti-money-laundering regime, let alone a global so-called fintech like Wirecard. And we have learned over the past six months, with growing unease, I might add, of Boffin's own people trading in Wirecard shares. And listeners, if you've forgotten, go back to episodes 12 through 18 for all of that mayhem. So what can possibly be left? 
Well, the IC's more vocal members have demanded to know, among other things, whether the Wirecard scandal had revealed any other glaring weaknesses in the supervisory authority of the Wirecard Supervisory Board and any other German regulatory bodies with a remit that touched on how Wirecard got away with this for so long. And finally, and I do mean finally, after I've been harping on this for the past eight months, the IC has asked, how did this wire card go on for 15 years? So let's start with the latest German government agency to be interviewed by the IC, the German Stock Exchange Supervisory Authority. Appearing on behalf of said authority was Tarek al-Wazir, Minister of State for Economic Affairs, Energy, Transport, and Regional Development of the State of Hesse. <sighs> now, there's both a mouthful and a broad remit. Anyway, understand, Frankfurt, where the DAX 30 is based, falls under the Hesse region, so ergo that state ministry with oversight of that agency and Herr al-Wazir called in to explain to the IC. And Al-Vizier was very quick to tell the IC, hold on, the Stock Exchange Supervisory Authority? Let's just shorten that to SASA. SASA is not responsible for confirming the balance sheets of the public companies on the DAX, or that, that all is well and good. As Al-Vizier observed to the IC, Wirecard had used every trick in the book to bypass the process of an IPO, which would have exposed it to scrutiny of its books. Wirecard had sought and acquired another company that had already been listed on the DAX, via, so reverse merger. Al-Bazir said of Wirecard, quote, it was looking for this shell, slipped in there, and so bypassed the tests that were supposed to be done, and then proceeded to observe, rules need to be changed to make it clear that, well, Wirecard of the future can't occur again. He did admit there was a smidge of overlap and failure of supervision. <clears throat> and he is quite right. Okay, so we have to pause for a moment, get back into our trusty time machine again, and whiz back to 2004. Why? Because back in 2004, FREP was created. And if you've forgotten FREP, go back and listen to episodes one through five. We, we covered them extensively in the early days of the Wirecard debacle. Now, Wirecard was actually created by the German government, with Boffin, right, in response to major accounting scandals in other countries. For instance, 2001 Enron scandal in the U.S. and the 2003 Parmalat fraud in Italy, both of which were cited in the creation of FRAP. The idea, to the German government's thinking, was that FRAP would prevent such massive frauds from happening on German soil. Seriously. But even when several media outlets provided evidence of WireGuard's fraud in 2018 and 2019, Boffin and Frepp were a tad sluggish off the mark when it came to investigating said allegations, right? I mean, we've covered this. So, the IC is now trying to determine what legislation needs to change to address this, mm, call it, minimal response. The whole notion of the government creating Frepp into existence some 16-plus years ago was driven by legislation tasking the German government with creating institutions that could detect and prevent large-scale balance sheet fraud in major publicly traded companies. Not only was this driven by the likes of watching Enron and Parmalat, it was in response to an EU directive requiring member states to oversee large companies effectively. 
operative word here. The German result was a <clears throat> private association which was to oversee the entire German corporate world armed with 14 auditors and an annual budget of 6 million euros via a contract with Boffin. Mm -hmm. And Frapp has now been forced to admit to knowing only the, as they said, internal logic, that's their words, of the documents companies under their supervision submit to them, and not their actual veracity. As Edgar Ernst, the head of FREP, told the IC this past week, for example, we can only check whether there is a customer contract. We can't check whether the contract is forged or whether the customer exists at all. Whew. Okay. Now, listeners, you'd be forgiven for forgetting one of the fundamental frauds Wirecard committed, given all that has been revealed since. But it was those forged contracts with those non-existent clients in Asia that accounted for so much of the equally non-existent cash Wirecard finally had to admit wasn't there last summer. So here's Ernst saying, yeah, mm, er, no way for us to know. Mm. But then it also emerged that Ernst doesn't just wear the regulator's hat. Oh, no. Transpires. He also sits on the supervisory board of a listed German company. Yeah, <laughs> no conflict of interest there. In fact, holding a board position of a listed company that falls under FRAP's supervision is against FRAP's internal rules, and has been since 2016. FRAP's employees are precluded from taking supervisory board roles. But that didn't stop Ernst. He took his seat on the company Metro, he took his seat on that board in 2017. Way to set an example for your employees, Ernst. When the IC asked him to explain just how this self-approved circumvention of the agency rules was justified, Ernst said he was, quote, surprised at the question. Who knew the IC would make such a challenging request? How to justify breaking the rules? Hmm. He stammered, he hemmed, he hawed, and then question answered, uh, my contract allows it? Uh, yeah, that answer did not fly. Frapp is now scrambling to locate a response that might please the IC. Edgar. <laughs> anyway, recall, Boffin had responded to the allegations against Wirecard by ordering Frapp to carry out a special audit. Remember all of this? The company added this to its list of problem cases, and that's Frep did, and assigned three whole employees to it. Now, only one of them was actually responsible for the case. The other two were just meant to be working for him, sort of. And all three Frep employees had to deal with other cases simultaneously. So, in a time-saving measure, the assigned employee sent a questionnaire to Wirecard to trace the fraud allegation. Wirecard, of course, known for its candor and integrity, naturally admitted all. Oh, wait, no, of course not. They, in the words of Ernst, continued the web of lies and thus dragged the proceedings into its ultimate insolvency. For this reason, Frep failed to uncover any criminal offense during the investigation. Quote, Ernst again, we don't have the means or the power to do anything like this. That is, investigate. They monitor companies such as Wirecard 
only for compliance with all the FREP rules, too bad Ernst doesn't follow them, and assuming the company appeared to be compliant, then the balance sheet must be considered to be audited. So far, so good, right? Worse, Ernst had to admit that back in 2016, when one of the short seller reports alleging fraud at Wirecard was published, Boffin tasked FREP with investigating, but, oh, that's so much work. A FREP employee actually wrote an email to Wirecard, and this one landed on Stefan von Erfa's desk. And the email from the FREP employee actually said, quote, we don't want to have to turn this fraud allegation thing, alluding to the short seller report, into part of our evaluation of the company. Seriously? What sort of useless regulator writes such a thing? The FREP rep asked Wirecard to write something up to defend itself, you know, so FREP could cut and paste it into their report back to Boffin. Needless to say, the IC was um, <clears throat> unimpressed. All right, they were downright peeved. MP DeMasi suggested that FREP had come close to turning itself into a partner in crime, his words. The IC was also not impressed that nobody in government of the various regulatory bodies noticed this rather glaring set of gaps between their respective responsibilities. MP Matthias Hauer expressed his surprise that Boffin had ever even handed the contract for corporate examinations to FREP in the first place, knowing full well FREP had no way of investigating fraud. Quote from Hauer, that was doomed to failure from the outset. Yes, what with the SESA having no authority, the Bavarian local government having no ability, and FREP phoning it in? And then, that ain't all. Evidence of Boffin's inability to critically think continued to emerge. And this with Felix already headed out the door. Good Lord, what, what next? Okay, remember Boffin had banned short-selling of Wirecard shares in response to media articles, the damning reports published by head funds. Remember all of that? Okay, it transpires. Back in 2019, the Trading Surveillance Office, now that kind of gives it away, of the Frankfurt Stock Exchange, Hoost, produced a report that questioned the media reports of Wirecard's alleged fraud and raised the possibility that those journos could be behind an attempt at market manipulation. So it wasn't just Boffin. No, here's what Andreas Mischka, the head, current head of Hoost, told the IC this past week. Quote, We were shocked afterwards at how wrong we were. Really? What does one say to such an admission by a regulator? Oh, Andreas, easy mistake, sure, uh-huh. As observed by so many who have testified to the IC over the past month, it was just such skepticism evinced by these regulators that sent the wrong signals to, well, even each other, other regulatory agencies who had a basis to believe Wirecard's board's protestations of innocence because their own colleagues at other regulatory bodies we're saying, oh, it all looks okay. Not that we've actually really checked. This was a self-reinforcing loop. Framp says looks okay, which reassures Boffin, who says, ah, yeah, looks good. And then the various exchange folks think all is right and true. 
that Frapp really didn't have any genuine means by which to make such a determination. Kind of more of a gut feeling. Or is that just the bratwurst from lunch? And the regional supervisory bodies, they just couldn't deal at all. So Wirecard sailed on for 15 years. So we'd think that would be it, but no, no, no. Boffin wasn't done making a fool of itself. <laughs> Seriously, this agency is Plato's ship of fools. Remember episode 14 where I discussed at length the ESMA report? And recall back in episode 12, I'd lambasted Boffin for crying wolf and claiming the need to ban short sellers of Wirecard stock, how there was no legal basis to do so as it failed to meet the standards ESMA had set forth for just such bans? Well, <clears throat> I love a little vindication. Two weeks ago, it emerged that Boffin may have been a little, quote, economical, well, no, my words, economical with the truth, when it provided its rationale for the short seller ban to asthma. Oh, let's just cut to the chase. They lied. They didn't tell asthma that they had an opinion from Germany's own central bank, you know, the Bundesbank, that actually opposed Boffin's bid to ban the Wirecard short sellers. Seriously. Boffin intentionally deceived the European Securities and Market Regulator, the authority, ESMA, and told ESMA Wirecard's record was clean as a whistle, neglecting to even mention that it had its own investigations into Wirecard presently open. ICMP Baez said Boffin had, quote, distorted the facts. But really, that is downplaying significantly their outright deception. The German regulatory body lied. Yeah, no integrity issues there. As we all know, investors took the asthma-approved ban as evidence that those unfavorable short-seller and whistleblower reports those negative media stories, that they were all full of it. But here's the most galling part of it all. After admitting this to the IC this past week, Boffin had the temerity to argue that it hadn't been overly selective with the information it gave to asthma. Come on, people. Let's just call BS on that one and move on. And that isn't all. No, no, no. God, these people are amazing. Where does it stop? In 2019, Fami Kadir, who runs the hedge fund Safkit Capital, sent a letter to Boffin with a detailed explanation why her fund had shorted Wirecard and offered to meet with Boffin to explain why the Boffin instigated ban on short selling was a bad idea. Boffin? They rejected the offer. Of course they did. Kadir had sent a 15-page argument on the benefits to the marketplace of short-selling and the dangers of, quote, corporate despotism, addressed to the head of the Boffin short-selling division. But Boffin demurred. Which is interesting, given that when in December 2020, the Bundesbank answered MP Baez's question about the bank's view of short-selling, and this is in relation to the IC's inquiry, and the bank responded, quote, short selling fulfills important economic functions. Going on to say, thus, 
The use of short selling is a principle capable of improving the function of financial markets by offering the opportunity to express pessimistic market counter positions. Maybe Boffin read it. When hedge funder Matthew Earle, he of the Sitar and Shadowfall reports, testified a few weeks back, he told the IC that when he'd rung Boffin's whistleblower hotline, the employee who answered claimed not to understand English and hung up. Earl said, quote, that is when I gave up. After all, this was the agency whose employees were doing their own short selling and insider trading of Wirecard shares. Did I tell you, listeners, that the other week, the Munich Public Prosecutor's Office arrested a Boffin employee for insider trading of Wirecard shares? There's irony for you. Meanwhile, Boffin has fired one employee, initiated disciplinary proceedings on two others, and two more are still under investigation, all for their involvement of trading in Wirecard shares. Forty-five Boffin employees were described as, quote, late to report their buying and selling of Wirecard stock. You know, being economical with the truth. I wonder where they learned that from. From just 2018 through September 2020, 510 private financial transactions involving Wirecard stock by Boffin employees. And the agency only got around to banning such trading activity by its staff, wait for this, two months ago. But the trading wasn't just limited to Boffin staff. Oh, no. Remember Opus? That's the Auditor's Supervisory Authority. They also had employees engaged in trading Wirecard shares. In fact, the head of Opus was trading Wirecard shares only two months prior to Wirecard's implosion. <laughs> He's on leave now. <laughs> As the IC observed, it is high time the government established a functioning, emphasis on functioning, internal control system for the private financial transactions of public servants, particularly when those public servants have access to confidential, market-relevant information. Why? Because, as they said, that's the IC, it does have rather a, quote, nasty appearance when public servants appear to be exploiting insider knowledge for personal financial gain, and that, that, undermines confidence in Germany's institutions. Yeah, bad optics indeed. So where does that leave Finance Minister Schultz? What with Boffin's clear utter lack of ethics, integrity, and competence? Just over a week ago, Schultz released what he called a seven-point roadmap for reforming Boffin. Now, this was put together with the assistance of a consultancy, so, you know, it features lots of arrows chasing their tails across a slide deck, banalities, and business jargon. For instance, one of Schultz's big solutions to the morally bankrupt Boffin is the creation of, wait for this, a data intelligence unit. Also among the seven points, seemingly all headed in different directions, is the idea of Hiring people who actually know what they're doing. <laughs> There's a novel concept. Hiring more auditors to augment the big five Boffin presently has. Recall, that's out of 2,700 employees there. Christ on a bike. The bigger, more complicated companies, and Wirecard would have fallen under that definition, 
are to receive special treatment. They're going to get a, quote, oversight body. What, within the oversight body that is Bothan? Or maybe this is tacit admission that Bothan isn't an oversight body and hence the need to create one? A, quote, task force huh, will be appointed to conduct forensic audits. Now, has anybody explained to Schultze that task forces are given a specific task and once completed, they're typically disbanded? So how long might we have, said Boffin Forensic Task Force? A year? Two? I think my favorite arrow of these seven points is the one that claims they won't hang up on whistleblowers. <laughs> Mr. Earl, your call will now be taken in the order received. For English, press one. We value our customers. <laughs> yeah, apparently, Boffin will now find value in talking to market participants and, wait for this, maintain a record of the whistleblower calls it receives. Schultz told the government he wants real teeth in Boffin's bite. <laughs> Are you freaking kidding me? As the IC observed, the Wirecard scandal reveals the shortcomings in the governance of the former DAX company. Hmm. Neither the auditors auditing the financial statements, nor the supervisory authorities, nor the Deutsche Bourse prevented the financial balance sheet and money laundering scandal. No, no, they didn't. The internal controls of the company by the supervisory board, which is supposed to supervise the executive board, which is responsible for the operational business, well, they all failed to prevent any of the resultant crimes perpetrated by Wirecard. So this raises the question whether the self-regulating approach for corporations under Germany's corporate governance code, the DCGK as it's known, is also perhaps just a wee bit insufficient. The corporate governance code itself was only developed and adopted by a government commission in the wake of a well-known German bankruptcy, uh, the Philip Holzman bankruptcy, back in 2000. Now, it's not only in the Wirecard case that the weaknesses of this self-regulation -regula becomes readily apparent. And we've I've talked about this at length. You can go back to some of the earlier episodes. Although various German government commissions have constantly adapted the code since 2000, it remains woefully insufficient to prevent massive accounting scandals. The German government has assumed that the development of the DCGK it was a success story. But, as Al-Wazir observed, there is room for improvement in more than just one agency, even the stock exchange. So now the German government has acknowledged that the Wirecard scandal has created an opportunity, read crisis, to thoroughly review supervisory law and the corporate governance structures they have for, well, identifying weaknesses. Mm. So they introduced a new draft law on strengthening financial market integrity, FISG, F-I-S-G, intended to improve supervision of companies and corporate governance codes. So what does FISG do? Well, part of the draft law is aimed at strengthening corporate governance through legislative changes. Okay, so far so good. Among other things, it proposes internal controls and companies be extended. Supervisory boards of public companies are to be strengthened and will be obliged to set up an audit committee. <laughs> Listeners, do try to contain your sharp intakes of breath here. I know. What do you mean? They weren't obligated before? No, they were not. In addition, FISIG calls for the expertise of supervisory boards be significantly improved. 
Listed companies will also be required to establish an appropriate and and effective internal control system and risk management system. (laughs) Come on, listeners, close your mouths. Jaws are hanging open, I know. Unfortunately, the specifics within FISIG at this juncture are still a little too vague. The draft also provides for fundamental reform of two-stage balance sheet control procedures geared to voluntary participation of audited companies, right? They're finally going to give up that element of a volunteer uh, in favor of a more state-based, read, government-enforced regulator, uh, balance sheet control procedure. In other words, they're going to stop relying upon self-certification. In particular, physics says Boffin <laughs> should be able to act directly with sovereign power over capital market companies in the event of suspected, quote, balance sheet irregularities. In other words, Boffin would be expected to do its job? Uh-huh. Federal, the German federal government says it's planning a substantial, quote, task appropriate, task appropriate improvement of the tools Boffin has at its disposal. Hmm. Lovely. But let's be honest, Boffin's been a disaster from day one. I mean, folks, if you don't know this, within two years of Boffin's creation back in 2002, just ahead of FREP's creation, a senior staffer at Boffin there was identified as having embezzled millions from the agency. And during the trial of that employee, the court actually cited the fact that Boffin didn't have any internal controls as, well, hmm, Maybe that's how they were able to embezzle. That was 20 years ago. Hard to comply when there's nothing to comply with, and harder still to detect when crimes occur within your own agency when your own agency doesn't have any detection mechanisms in place. When the very people who lead these regulatory bodies are compromised, like Ernst sitting on the board of one of the public companies his agency is tasked with regulating, It takes more than just some minor reforms. In fact, the sooner the German government comes to the realization that it is going to take a lot more than just removing Huffeld and giving it greater enforcement powers to ever hope to reform Boffin, the better. In fact, time to scrap it. It's ethically broken. Germany needs to start over and build a regulatory body commensurate with its standing in the global economy. They would do well to swallow some Teutonic pride and go look at how some other countries organize their financial regulators and take a page or two from those books. Now, listeners, you may wonder why I belabor the intricacies of the regulatory gaps in the German system week after week, but there are some genuine lessons to be learned here. One may sit in another jurisdiction, smug as can be, that home regulations would never allow such events to occur in my country. Or would they? Recall, the Germans actually implemented some of the existing regulatory oversight in response to the U.S. Enron and WorldCom scandals and to the Italian Parmalat scandal. They actually sought to proactively legislate controls with the intent to prevent such frauds from occurring with German companies on German soil. And look how well that turned out. Those not involved in the detailed authoring of laws and regulations assume when a new piece of legislation is promulgated with a stated aim of combating fraud, corruption, market manipulation, corporate malfeasance, and so on and so on, those responsible for the drafting have carefully thought through all the potential loopholes and closed them, that they've analyzed the gaps between regulatory structures and, and, and all the strictures and sealed them up 
that they've identified where abuses or negligence could occur and sought to remediate those before the final language is codified. But frequently, this is not the case. Gaps in remit and responsibility often are not identified until after the fact, unless those outside actively scrutinize and call out the shortcomings. The lesson from this debacle is it frequently isn't often enough to assume the regulators are doing their job, the politicians paying attention to what they create, the two groups closely conferring. Policymaking needs independent oversight, and there are places for those who understand the corrosive effects of inadequate controls to weigh in, not only at the time of the policymaking, but to go back and review existing regulations and processes to identify how something like a wire card could occur in their own backyard. Policy reform needs champions, those who don't mind rootling around in the dry weeds of the actual language of the regulations and the regulatory organizational rules. And whilst we're at it, let me suggest another improving exercise. I would posit that there is an argument here for creating a mandatory independent ethical audit. The market relies upon financial audits, but ethical audits of companies over a certain annual turnover, and heck, maybe even the regulatory bodies themselves, just like we do mandatory financial audits on publicly traded companies, I'd say we need some ethical audits. Rotate the integrity auditing every three years, but if companies are going to engage in invisible political contributions, contribute to soaring inequality, foster falsities in their platforms, or contribute to undermining democracy, such as in Wirecard's case, engaging in facilitating foreign intelligence agencies bent on tearing down democracy, or if they're going to impact through their products and services that affect climate change, maybe it's time to impose a new form of measuring just how accountable these companies are to society. We can't hope that social justice short sellers will uncover every fraud or that the market will respond accordingly when they do. We need more. Oh, in Germany, create a federal level Office of Inspector General, give them full investigatory powers, and turn them loose on your broken agencies. There is some serious house cleaning to be done. So turning back to the IC hearings, Remember the reluctant EY partners who whinged to the IC they couldn't possibly testify as they owed confidentiality to their now-defunct client WireGuard? Well, a German court the other day ruled that they must absolutely testify to the IC. Additionally, the files they handed over to the IC, those that were, those that were sealed, they're now to be unsealed. So this should make some very interesting testimony and reading. Oh, goody, can't wait for the next couple of weeks. Uh, and the other week, speaking of testimony... Former CFO Alexander Van Noop, who has been cooperating with the investigation, testified to the IC. Naturally, like so many of his colleagues, he claimed to be utterly shocked by the revelations when Wirecard failed. He claims not only has his professional life been upended, but his personal life utterly destroyed. I want to feel sympathy, but dude, you were the bloody CFO. You should have done your damn job. Of course, Von Noop claims that management and supervision of Wirecard to escrow accounts were all under Marsalik. After all, why would the CFO have anything to do with the company's financial accounts? Declaring that he had not an inkling about the 15-year-long fraud, he pinned all blame on Marsalik. Please don't tell me how this is, this is how things are going to go. Seriously? Blame the guy who's in hiding or can't or won't speak up? What next? Blame Bauer, the dead guy? Give me a bloody break. 
Herr von Noop seems to forget his name is all over several of those dodgy related entities, which I will be spending some more time on in a future episode. But speaking of Marsalek, let's turn our attention to him. Because it wouldn't be a complete episode without him, would it? No, listeners, we've all come to enjoy the hijinks of Jan Marsalek. It emerged the other week that an arrest warrant from the Munich Public Prosecutor's Office had narrowly missed our boy Marsalek. The decision not to seek an arrest warrant, the day Wirecard admitted the $1.9 billion was missing, it turned out to be a little bit of a poor decision indeed. Because apparently, at the time, the prosecutor's office didn't think the crime of faking 1.9 billion euros was serious enough to warrant the perp walk that day. Because, of course, as we know, Jan legged it to his Austrian intelligence friends over the border and they facilitated his escape to Russia. And go back to episode 17 if you've forgotten that excitement. So here we pick up with Marsalek's buddies in Austria. And, <laughs> oh my God, it's really getting ugly. Okay, remember Martin Wise, Austrian government official, he formerly of the BVT, that's the hybrid police intelligence organization within the Austrian Ministry of the Interior? Seriously, if for some reason you're brand new to this series or you've forgotten uh, what that is, go back to episode 17, Revolving Doors, because that, that lays the groundwork. Okay, recall... Weiss was arrested a few weeks ago for his role in assisting with Marsalek's escape to Russia. Okay, well, post-arrest, Herr Weiss, under interrogation, has been singing like the proverbial canary. When not spilling all, according to his lawyer, Herr Weiss is so stressed out by all this pressure under interview, he's been confined to an Austrian psychiatric hospital. Now, before you start feeling sympathetic toward his mental vexation... Listen to some of what has emerged from his time playing footsie with Marsalek and company. Austrian and German investigative reporters broke the story a few days ago. It would seem that Martin Weiss and some of his former colleagues still at the Austrian BVT were spying on German MPs at the behest of Marsalek. <laughs> Let me say that in a simpler form. An asset of Russian intelligence was directing individuals from Austrian intelligence to spy on German politicians. Now, before we get further into this, I'll say it is not as if intelligence agencies around the world don't watch what politicians in other countries get up to. But there are unwritten rules. Remember that brouhaha when it came to light that U.S. signals intelligence had been eavesdropping on Angela Merkel's cell phone a few years ago? The unwritten rule is... You don't do this. And you sure as hell don't share any information your agency collects with a private company. This news story is particularly troubling for a number of reasons that will soon become apparent. Germany's Süddeutsche Zeitung and Austria's Die Press and Profile media outlets were the first to obtain copies of some of the Martin Weiss interview transcripts. Now, Weiss has told investigators that he and some of his former colleagues within the BVT, including one who has also been arrested and detained, and because of Austrian law, you can, we can only use his initials, EO, gathered intelligence on German Bundestag members, including IC member and co-chair of the IC, Fabio Damasi. In chat logs, they called Damasi a cretinous lefty and stupid, 
Although, really, who's looking stupid now, Herr Weiss? Why do this? Well, de Masi, long before the IC was formed, had been critical of Wirecard. For a number of years prior to Wirecard's implosion, de Masi had read the fraud allegations by the short sellers and read the articles by the Financial Times, even being interviewed by that paper a couple of times, and suggested the company should be investigated. That, of course, well, that hurt baby Jan Marsalek's feelings. Poor baby, that bad old MP says mean things, hurt baby's feelings. So naturally, Marsalek turned to the Austrian intelligence officers he was now running and asked them to dig up dirt on Damasi and spy on him. Hmm, a confidence trick of sort. Here's how it went down. Weiss, who until 2017 was the powerful head of that critical department within the BVT, had left the service and set up his consulting shop, and here we go with politicians turned consultants, but still maintained close contacts with former colleagues within the agency, including EO. Weiss's company became a contractor to Wirecard thanks to Marsalek. According to Weiss, Marsalek gave him at least 25 targets. Now, Jan maintained a list of espionage targets. Of course he did. Those Russian paymasters assign a lot of homework. So Marsalek asked Weiss to use his contacts at the BVT to obtain sensitive and classified information on those on his list. And Marsalek's special naughty and nice list included politicians and journalists in both Austria and Germany. Weiss would contact EO, and EO would run the information the BVT had. Now, Marsalek was worried that Damasi was somehow also employed by German intelligence and thus keen to find out where he was truly connected. Weiss has confessed that there were other politicians and subjects of the investigation Marsalek sought from him, including information about former leaders of German intelligence. Yes, Marsalek, via Weiss, sought to gain insights from German security circles. How? Well, here's an example. Weiss and BVT buddy EO forwarded Damasi's CV to a former German Chancellor's office minister, Bernard Schmidbauer. Why? Weiss and Schmidbauer are longtime friends. Schmidbauer was the coordinator responsible for the German Secret Service under German Chancellor Helmut Kohl between 1991 and 1998. Since then, Schmidbauer has, according to his own published statements, been advising governments and has, quote, close contacts with Russia, Israel, and Libya, among others. Süddeutsche Zeitung reported that Schmidbauer was also some sort of go-between in an Austrian hostage negotiation with Libya, although there's very little additional information on that, on that element. But funny how we just keep coming back to the same places Marsalek liked to play in. Now, I've now seen copies of some of Weiss's interrogation transcripts, including where he asks that his request be forwarded to, quote, my friend Schmidbauer from the Federal Republic of Germany, saying, this name is related to a source from the BVT during my tenure. Weiss also claimed he'd provided more information, well, he also claimed to his interrogators that, listen, I'll tell you more if it's outside of this formal interrogation attempting to bargain a bit. But he also confessed 
that senior BVT officials exchanged information about journalists and parliamentarians and that Weiss would pass this information on to his friend, Schmidbauer. In another transcript, Weiss says, quote, I then sent a list of about 10 people via the internet, telephone, odd phrasing. Marsalek wrote and printed the list with the computer. I photographed the note and forwarded the picture. Sometimes there were individuals. Mostly, they were men with foreign names. In most cases, I only got the name. All in all, I can say that between the end of 2018 and the end of 2020, I asked for about 25 queries in police databases. Now, Vice and EO were apparently still at it with respect to Damasi as recently as January 8th. <clears throat> How do we know? Gotta love chat logs. Remember, kids, everything you do electronically is a record. So now, unsurprisingly, the German government is asking some questions that are making Austria feel, well, a little uncomfortable, such as, just how many of our MPs have been targets of your intelligence agency? Your folks helped one of our criminals evade justice, and now it turns out they weren't just working for the criminal, they were also working against Germany itself? We may share a language, but we sure as hell aren't sharing the love right now. The German IC and the Austrian parliament are now also asking some very pointed questions, including if the BVT had a contract to use Schmidbauer's consulting firm. Like, do you mean to say that A, employees of Austria's BVT were on German soil spying on German politicians, and that B, Jan Marsalek's circle of friends includes Schmidbauer, Germany's former envoy, envoy for intelligence? Thus far, the answer from the respective governments has been, uh, <clears throat> looking into it, uh, press coverage seems to have gotten there before us, uh, can't say, may interfere with them. Um, are we investigating this yet? Oh yeah, that's it. It could interfere with our investigation. We have an investigation going, right? Oh, God. listeners expect this to get so much juicier. Just how big and wide does the Marsalek-led spying ring go? Well, the Austrian parliamentary inquiries give us some hint. You see, this story opened a even larger tin of worms. Now, we'll get into the companies and players that have begun to crop up in our next episode, but here's a teaser. Deeper ties to Brigadier Gustav Gustenau, including private tete-a-tetes at Marsalek's Munich villa with then-Austrian Chancellor Wolfgang Schussen, close relationships with Austrian Broadcasting Corp board members Thomas Zack, Christopher Ulmer, and their consulting firm Gratis Proximus, leading to questions about far-right and in Russian influence on Austrian media independence, former Austrian Minister of the Interior Ernst Strasser, and direct ties to other Austrian politicians involved in the Ibiza affair, leading all to another currently evolving Austrian political scandal, this one featuring the international gambling corporation Novomatic. In the next couple of weeks, I'll be exploring at a deeper level the connection between the gambling industry and Wirecard. Now, remember the Austrian far-right party, the OVP, and the Austrian-Russian societies Jan Marsalek and Marcus Braun were linked to, including the Institute for Security Policy, ISP? Well, the ISP has a multi-year funding contract from Novomatic. And in the middle of all this, 
sits Marsalik and a former Stasi officer. Oh, <laughs> we are going to have so much fun over the next couple of episodes. You cannot begin to imagine what Wirecard was up to with all of these players. And that is it for today's episode. Next week, to celebrate the 20th episode of Lies, Spies, and Corporate Crimes, we'll open the Pandora's box that Marsalik built. My thanks to Tom Fox and the award-winning Compliance Podcast Network for their continuing support of this series. I'm Mikhail Ryder-Gordon, and I'll see you next week. Thanks, listeners. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox. I'd like to thank you for listening to this episode of The Wirecard Saga. The Wirecard Saga is a special production of the Compliance Podcast Network and a proud member of C-Suite Radio. Thanks so much for listening, and we look forward to visiting with you again in the new year. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.